Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Do you think that the goals of affirmative action are feasible without affirmative action? No. I went to college as a result of affirmative action, and I can't imagine right now how that's going to work, seeing how the society is structured. Clarence Thomas would not be where he was is today if it was not for affirmative action. There's no colorblind in America. But why now? Why did they take up that case? I think sometimes when you are popular and you're hanging with rich people, you don't recognize that racism exists. Yeah, I think there's going to be a significant rise in white students and a decline in number of black and Hispanic and other community students, which is terrible. And I think students will always find a university to go to, but they will probably come down to tier, which will affect job prospects, which will you know, have repercussions over the years. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. We are going to have a conversation this week about the Supreme Court's ruling ending race-based affirmative action, about the ideas articulated in the justices' opinions, because for me, the logic behind the ruling is as consequential as the fact of it. Ideas matter, and not just as a legal concern. How we define any problem informs how we imagine solutions to it. The ideas in the court's majority and concurring opinions on affirmative action have a long and consequential history, and given the power of this court, maybe they have quite a future too. To wrap our heads around them, I'm joined by historian Ibram X. Kendi. He's the director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of a growing list of best-selling books, including How to Be an Anti-Racist and his epic National Book Award-winning work, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas, and by the way, a graphic novel adaptation of Stamped has just come out. So Ibram, you remain a very busy man. Thanks for coming back on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the ideas in these opinions. Um, You have written about them extensively. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion on affirmative action, and he's been an opponent for decades. 
Uh, but more than that, he's been making a version of the argument he offered in this decision for decades, which is, in sum, any effort to consider race in making public policy is itself an act of racial discrimination. So in Stamped, in, in your writing since the ruling in The Atlantic, you've traced the long and winding history of versions of this idea. I want to start with the recent history, uh, because in the book, uh, you quote Newt Gingrich saying something in 1997 that sounds exactly like the Supreme Court in 2023. He said, quote, racism will not disappear by focusing on race. So take us back to the mid to late 90s. Why did you point to there as the modern evolution of what you call colorblind racism? How did this this thing emerge in today's politics? So I believe it was in in 1997 when President Clinton at the time decided to lead what he called a national conversation on race and 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 really on racism and republicans by and large challenged that decision by stating that race was no longer a factor that racism didn't exist that the nation was colorblind and and the term colorblind in reaction to president clinton's uh, national conversation on race and it, it sort of he put together this uh, committee which i believe was was chaired by the eminent historian John Hope Franklin. And, 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 but that was the reaction, that we don't need yeah. to, to discuss race, uh, let alone eliminate race, be, be, because the nation is, 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 is colorblind. And I think about, you know, this word colorblind. I, you know, I think about, you know, I grew up in the early 80s, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and I just remember how people used to say proudly, you know, like, I'm colorblind. I, I'm colorblind. I do not see race. And that was proof of an evolved posture on race relations. And I always felt some kind of way when I heard it as a young man, even though I didn't really have the words or the language for why it was bothering me. Is is, is this related um, to that? Do you remember that, how that used to be the thing that people would say, just individuals? Is this related to what we're talking about here in terms of what the colorblind racism that you're describing? It, it is. And, and I, I think you, you had many people who were, were fed this mistaken belief that the problem isn't racism, isn't racial disparities, isn't racial inequities that we can empirically document, that the problem is talking about race, is merely identifying by race. And if we somehow stop identifying by race, if we stop talking about race, then apparently race will go to, go away. That's like saying if we stop talking about cancer as a cancer survivor, that suddenly this 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 epidemic of you know of cancer will go away. I mean it was it was a folly then and it remains a folly. Right. But the idea as it emerged as sort of a political thing, moving from, you know, the and I and I'm interested in this dichotomy between like what you know the the, the common sense thing that I can imagine you know, individuals who are not, uh, you know, students of racist ideas, they, oh, yeah, great. I shouldn't be thinking about race. That's a very straightforward and common sense sounding thing. And then how that becomes a political tool um, for reversing um, public policy. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, it, it became a political tool largely because by the 1960s and especially the 1970s, a, a growing number of people who recognized widespread racial disparities uh, 
also recognized that we could not eliminate those racial disparities by ignoring them. We actually needed to take affirmative action in order to close those, those racial gaps. And so those who wanted to conserve those racial disparities uh, tried to say that, no, you who are trying to close, uh, those who I should say were trying to conserve those disparities said those who are trying to uh, reduce them are the new problem. I, I mean, it was it was nonsensical. Uh, but many of the people who who claim colorblindness or who advocate for race neutrality have no plan for reducing racial disparities and typically state uh, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people are underrepresented at the most selective colleges because there's something wrong and inferior about them. The very people who say race is not an issue hold racist ideas. In those late 90s, mid to late 90s, when Bill Clinton was holding his conversation on race and Newt Gingrich began ranting against, ranting for colorblindness, um, one of the things that arguments that you make in the book that, is that we were at a moment, a unique moment of a surge in anti-racism and anti-racist organizing and consensus around anti-racist ideas. Can you just make that case? And, and thus, this was something of a backlash. I don't know if people remember that moment. Can you, what, what, what are you talking about there? Yeah, so we're, we're talking about the, the early, I should say the late 1980s and the early 1990s. That was the rise of, of conscious hip hop. Uh, that was the rise of, of black studies in colleges and universities. That was the rise of, of critical race theory in, in law schools. Uh, that was the rise of all sorts of uh, anti-racist uh, Black and Indigenous and, and Native uh, organizations who who were clamoring for self determination and, and power, and 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 of course uh, there was a, a tremendous backlash that stated, no, the problem isn't racism. The problem are these people who are organizing against racism, and that sounds very familiar to this day. Yeah, the, the backlash part of it certainly sounds very familiar to it today. Walking backwards through this history, so we're 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 in the you know in the eighties and nineties, this idea of colorblindness starts becoming a, a political tool. Walking back through this history, you write and stamp from the beginning about the Supreme Court's nineteen seventy eight ruling that upheld race based affirmative action, but with this important change in the logic, it was it was now justified because it created diverse campuses, which was seen as a benefit for all students. That's very different. Uh, from something that sought to counter the racist practices that had kept particularly black students out of many universities. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with that case now. It's come up a lot in the debate over the latest ruling. But I don't hear a lot about the dissenting opinions from the liberal justices in that case. And in your book, you point to Harry Blackman, who wrote, I want to I quote this. He wrote in his dissenting opinion, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way and in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. And I just, I was revisiting that uh, after this ruling. I was going back through your book and I was revisiting that. And I thought, oh, it is impossible to imagine a public official saying something like that today. It, it, do, do you agree with me? Is that, am I, was, I, it just felt like a, a time capsule from another planet. Indeed, and, and and I think I think you have some elected officials who who speed around the bush, but 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 Justice Blackman said it very directly, and and I agree, it'd be hard pressed for many 
elected officials, even those who are defending affirmative action, uh, to to say that today. Is it still an anti-racist idea in 2023? W- without question. I mean, I, this isn't, I mean, we, we of course can talk about race and racism, but any social or political problem, there's no way in which we can identify it and solve it by ignoring it, <laughs> by not attacking it and addressing it head on. Yeah. It, I asked this question also because it, it does feel like affirmative action, like this, this ruling is the end of an era. But it's also the question of which era, right? I mean, the era of diversity, um, I guess, is ending. And maybe the era of equity ended with Justice Blackman's dissent. Um, am I overstating that case? <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but I want, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Well, well, let me just say what I hope. I think what what I hope, and I've actually already started to see signs of this, but what I hope is this is the end of, 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 a, of a time in which those of us who are serious about racial justice are agreeing with the logic that there's race neutrality. Uh, I, I think since this decision, you've had more and more people who've spoken out against, for instance, legacy admissions. And, and recognize the ways in which legacies provide racial preferences to, to white students. They've spoken out against uh, benefits to relatives of donors. So I think people hopefully are beginning to, to recognize that, that affirmative action was not the only admissions factor that was considering race. We got to take a break. I'm talking with historian and author Ibram X. Kendi about the ideas raised in the Supreme Court's ruling that ended race-based affirmative action in college admissions. More with Ibram Kendi after a break. Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab-American diaspora. So now is your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. And I can't wait to hear from you. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen 
wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Ibram X. Kendi, director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas, for which there is now a graphic novel adaptation to go along with the children's book version and a young adult version. And Ibram, you know, I, I do think the way you framed this whole stamped project is really notable, that it's a history of ideas behind racism. I don't think I've asked you before why you felt the world needed an exhaustive chronicle of racist ideas rather than just, you know, the history of what happened. Well, let me just say there's a number of different reasons. I'll just give two. One, because there, I, I noticed through the research that there were many people who held both racist and anti-racist ideas, oftentimes said either or both in the same speech, in the same paragraph of, mm-hmm. of the same speech. And, and so it, it, it would have been hard to write a history of, quote, racists or anti-racists. Uh, I also thought it was important to really track who produced these ideas and why and what type of impact did they have on society and what type of impact did society have on these ideas. Yeah. Um, and one of the ideas, one of the racist ideas that you most directly uh, commented on following the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action was the doctrine of separate but equal. You wrote about this in The Atlantic. Um, this is, of course, the idea that made racial segregation legal in the first place. How do the ideas in the court's affirmative action ruling have their lineage in separate but equal? Well, ironically, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts in his majority opinion in the in the affirmative action case recently talked about the notion that the schools were separate but equal was an inherent folly uh, and because everybody knew schools were not separate but equal and and I, I would argue that the lineage is that everyone should know that there are other admissions factors other than affirmative action that give preferential treatment, but almost all of the other ones give preferential treatment to white and wealthy students. Affirmative action is the only admissions factor that primarily benefits uh, Black, Brown, and Indigenous students. And and unfortunately, um, he framed uh, all those other admissions factors as race neutral, which to me is just as much of a folly as the idea a century ago that these schools, which were obviously unequal, uh, were somehow equal. And I guess for help people with just a step more of that, because I think it's people hear things like, well, you know, this is just, that's just like separate but equal Mm -hmm. and think, well, that's, you know, that's ancient history. That's, you know, that is forever ago. And that is uh, a dead and gone idea. And how could you possibly listen to John Roberts saying, hey, just like, let's treat everybody the same and think, well, that's just like Jim Crow. Yeah, so, Just do the math a little more for people. Sure. So John Roberts said again and again that affirmative action was the only race-based admissions factor. So standardized tests, uh, which uh, studies consistently show 
that they don't actually predict who's going to do well in college or even graduate school, but they do predict the test, the, 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 the wealth or the income of the parents of the test takers. And we have a massive racial wealth gap in this country, which then allows white and wealthy students to be able to use high-priced test prep uh, courses, which then boost their scores. So to imagine that a standardized test is not is somehow race neutral uh, denies the racial wealth gap, denies what studies show in terms of what standardized test scores predict. Mm-hmm. Similarly for legacies. Uh, and, and I think a, a recent, a lot of people have been talking about a study that was conducted at Harvard, uh, which, which found that a large percentage of their white students either were admitted as the result of being uh, the children of alumni, the relatives of donors, uh, athletes, uh, or even the children of employees. And and indeed, the study found that about three-fourths of white students, if they didn't have those four admissions booths, would not have gotten admitted. And all four of those uh, elements give preferential treatment to white students. White students uh, have a have the ability to get boosted because their parents are more likely to be on the faculty and staff. Their parents are more likely to donate. Their parents were not shut out of these schools for hundreds of years like Black and Indigenous students. And white students are more likely to be playing high-priced sports that gets them into colleges. So to imagine those factors are race neutral, again, uh, flies in the face of reality. So it's in seeing, it's in looking at something plainly, with plainly inequitable outcomes, calling it neutral, but then once the word is racist said, saying that's racist, and that's the same ideas as uh, that supported Jim Crow in the first place. Um, Exactly, because in this, remember, a century ago, Mississippi and Alabama were saying that their schools were separate but equal. (laughs) Just as people are saying that these other admissions factors are neutral. You work in a university setting, obviously. Stepping back from the history and just talking about yourself and your students, what was your reaction to the court's ruling? I mean, it was was devastating because I I know that it's going to be harder uh, for highly qualified uh, black, brown, and indigenous students, and even many low-income Asian and white students, to get into you know a selective university like like Boston University and others, you know, like it. And and I know that many selective universities have directly or indirectly stated that they're going to use more sort of income-based or zip code-based factors. Uh, but one of the things we wrote about in that article in the Atlantic is how even when you use class-based factors, you're still likely to benefit white students because white students are less likely, I should say low-income white students, are less likely to live in highly impoverished neighborhoods. Their parents are less likely to have to send their kids uh, to lesser resource schools. And so they're going to benefit too, even by this new effort. You you went to Florida A and M University for college, FAMU, uh, a historically black university. I wonder if you would. There's been some discussion now about in the in the wake of this about you know why are we focused on these selective white majority institutions so much? Shouldn't we be supporting stuff like 
explicitly pro-Black spaces like HBCUs instead. You want to wade into that debate at all before I let you go? Well, I think we could do both. I mean, I, I think <laughs> we can we can promote and enhance and defend HBCUs as, as just as valuable, if not more valuable than, than many uh, historically white college universities, while also knowing that students who live on the West Coast or the Midwest or the Northeast who want to stay close to home, they don't have ac- options to go to an HBCU. And so we could, we should ensure that the admissions factors are fair and equal for them. Ibram X. Kendi is director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. He's the author of the best-selling book, How to Be Anti-Racist, and the National Book Award-winning Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas, for which there is now a graphic novel adaptation. Ibram, thanks so much for this time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with, Ta- Notes with Kai. Theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Billy Estreen, Karen Froman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer. I'm Kai Wright. I'll talk to you next week. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.